Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 7. Psalm 37, and we'll start reading in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 31 today, and we're, our focus is going to be verses 30 and 31 this morning. Psalm 37, verse 1, says, Do not fret because of evildoers, be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass, uh, and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in contact, conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish, like smoke they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him will inherit the land and will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking, Lord, that our mouth would utter wisdom today and that our tongue would speak justice. Lord, that the words that are spoken this morning, Lord, the interpretation of your scripture, Lord, would be consistent with your word. Lord, with what is true and right. Lord, what is wise and just. Lord, so that your wisdom and your justice, Lord, Lord, would go forth in power among your people. Lord, that we might be instructed in the ways of the Lord. Lord, that we might better understand and know, Lord, how to live a life that is pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that even today you would continue 
Lord, to inscribe your word on our hearts. Lord, that your law would be within us. And that, Lord, as a result, we would have a desire, Lord, to know your will, Lord, and a desire to obey, Lord, your commandments. So, Father, we pray that today you continue to teach us from your word and that your spirit would be with us, Lord, as our instructor and as our guide. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, well, here we are in Psalm 37. And last time we saw that it is only the Lord who can establish a man, right? Only God can uphold a man, and this he does when he delights in his way. God does not establish all men, but only his chosen ones, right? Only the righteous, so that when the righteous fall, they are not cast headlong, because God is the one who is holding his hand. The wicked, in contrast, they fall to their own ruin and destruction, but the righteous, though they may stumble they will not fall headlong. That they will not be brought to ruin because God is the one who keeps them from falling to their own destruction. God will never forsake his holy ones. This was the experience of the prophet. He declares to us that in the course of his life, he was young, now he's old, he's never seen the righteous man forsaken, he's never seen his children begging for bread. But on the contrary, God's bounty and blessing is upon him to such an extent that all day long he is gracious and lends and his descendants are a blessing upon the earth. Because of this, the righteous, he says, will not be shaken. And we are urged by the prophet to depart from evil and to do good and then we will abide forever. This is the life of faith, right? One who is a true child of God, one who has true faith in Christ will be manifest, will be evident by departing from evil and doing good. This is what separates true Christians from fake Christians. A fake fraudulent Christian will not depart from evil and will not do good. But instead, they will use the grace of God to promote and commit many sins against God. While a true Christian rightly understands that the grace of God is given to deliver him from his sin. So he desires to live a godly life. He desires to overcome evil. He desires to do what is good and right in the sight of God. And this is what must be true of us. The reason he gave is because the Lord loves justice. Our God is a righteous God, and he loves righteousness. Right? The proper understanding of good and evil. And since this is true of our God and of our Father, then it must be true of us. Just as our God loves justice, so his children will also love justice, and our justice will be seen in a life of justice, departing from evil and doing good. And if this is true of us, then we will not be forsaken by God. Right? The life of godliness provides the evidence that gives to us assurance of salvation. And this assurance is only for the righteous and never for the wicked. The wicked will be cut off but the righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. So that's where we left off last time, and we're going to pick up today in verse 30. Verses 30 and 31 are communicating profound truths, things that we need to understand that must be true of us. We'll begin with verse 30. Psalm 37, 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Here we have more proof, right? More evidence of the righteousness of the righteous. 
What are the characteristics of a godly man? How are we able to examine our own life, judge ourselves, and also examine and judge others to determine whether or not we are in the faith? Right? Isn't this a part of the Christian life? Aren't we instructed by the apostle to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see whether or not we are in the faith? Well, what are we supposed to test? What do we look at, right? What is the evidence that we need to see that will confirm to us that we are indeed children of God? 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. There it says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? How often are we supposed to do this? All of our life, all of our Christian life, we are called to test ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see whether or not we are in the faith. We should not be presumptuous Christians who say, I know that I know that I know that I'm a Christian and that I'm going to heaven and I have nothing to worry about. This is what people do. This is what they want. But this is not the way the apostle teaches. This is very presumptuous and very proud. We should be testing ourselves, examining ourselves, looking at the evidence, looking at the fruit. And if we pass the test, then we can say we have eternal life. Then we can claim that we are the children of God. Again, many people claim to be Christians. We all claim to be Christians. But where is the proof, right? Where is the evidence? Very important for us to test ourselves and to look for the right kind of fruit, right? Because it is only the righteous who will see God. Well, here in verse 30, we have one of the most prominent, preeminent fruits, one of the clearest proofs that someone is in the faith that someone is indeed a righteous man. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. His mouth utters wisdom, his tongue speaks justice. One of the clearest evidences that someone is a righteous man will be seen in his mouth, or rather, what comes out of his mouth. What proceeds from his mouth? Well, here, according to the prophet, the righteous man has wisdom and justice in his mouth, right? These things rest upon his tongue so that he speaks in the world truth concerning wisdom and justice of God. He's not spouting out his own ideas. He's not giving his own opinions. He's not talking about the latest, greatest scholarship from this or that institution. He's not doing those things. He's not concerned with any of this, but rather he wants to know what is the wisdom of God? What is the justice of God? And then he finds out what that is, and this is what he speaks in the world in which he lives. He talks about the wisdom of God concerning the issues of the day, concerning the topics that are at hand. He declares the very wisdom and justice of God in his own generation to himself, to his family to the church, in society, to unbelievers, wherever he goes, the wisdom of God is in his mouth. The justice of God is on his tongue. And as situations arise, this is what he speaks. This is what he addresses concerning this or that situation. Proverbs chapter 10. 
Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10, verse 11. says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Meaning, he's a liar. The mouth of the wicked. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. A fountain of life. Also, chapter 13 of Proverbs. Chapter 13, verse 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Also, chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 4. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. This is what comes out of his mouth. And what is the source of this wisdom, this fountain of wisdom that turns people away from death? Well, isn't that what is ascribed to the word of God? It is the word of God. This is what he's proclaiming. It's the very wisdom of God found in the word of God. He set his mind on knowing the word of God, understanding it, and then this is what he's speaking and bringing forth in his own generation. God's wisdom, not his own, not his own opinions, not the opinions of men, not the lies of the devil, but the very wisdom of God. Wisdom and justice of God defined by God in the Bible and not defined by man. This is what comes from the mouth of of the righteous. Flip over to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 verse 97. Psalm 119:97 says, "Oh how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation." I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Right? Isn't that an understanding of justice and righteousness? He understands what is good, what is true, what is evil, what is false. He turns away from evil and he does what is good. That's what we read last time from Psalm 37. Depart from evil and do good. This is justice. This is wisdom. And where does he get this wisdom? Where does he arrive at this understanding? The law of God. Oh, how I love your law. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. This is his source of wisdom the word of God, and this is what comes from his mouth. So show me a man who claims to be a Christian, yet continually spews forth foolishness, spews forth lies, has obscene, unwholesome words in his mouth, and I'll show you a liar. He can claim it, but he has no evidence. Because here, if he's a believer, if he's a Christian, wisdom is going to be on his mouth. Justice is going to be on his mouth, right? And not only is this true of an obscene person, right? One who has a filthy mouth, certainly his mouth condemns him, but even a soft-spoken person who may not be ranting and raving, who may not be swearing and using profane language, but if what they are saying 
contradicts the word of God, then his or her mouth also condemns them. He is condemned because he is saying something contrary to God. The Christian pastor, who may not be swearing, but who's teaching free will, well, his mouth is not uttering wisdom and justice, but rather lies, lies from the devil. Or the Christian pastor, who may not be ranting and raving, but is saying that homosexuality is not a sin, who will say that it's not worthy of death. Well, that's not consistent with the Bible. His tongue does not have God's justice on it. Who told him that it's acceptable for two men to get married? Right? Who told him that it is okay for them to do this? If, as long as they're consenting adults, as long as they love each other, that what happens in the bedroom is none of our business. Where do people get this so-called wisdom? It's not coming from the Bible. It's not coming from God. It's coming from the devil. And even if he's soft-spoken, even if he's fancy dressed, even if he's saying it with a lot of uh, gusto and with fanciful words and these types of things, it's not consistent with the justice of God found in the Bible. And if he is a righteous man, he's going to utter wisdom and he will speak justice. And that is contrary to those things. These words, any words that contradict the Bible are not words of a righteous man but are the words of a foolish and a wicked man. A righteous man brings forth wisdom and justice from his mouth. A wicked man brings forth folly from his mouth. The mouth reveals the man. The mouth reveals the man. People will always protest and say, you can't see my heart. God sees my heart. You can't see my heart, which is true. I can't see your heart, but I can hear your words. And by your words, I can determine what's in your heart, right? By your words, I can determine whether you have wisdom and justice in your heart or whether you have sin and lies within your heart. A man with a filthy mouth has a filthy heart, right? A man who speaks lies with his mouth has lies in his heart. A man who speaks lewdly about women has adultery in his heart from the heart comes the mouth. This is what comes out. Then this shows me what is in the heart. And the converse is true as well. A man with a pure mouth has a pure heart. A man with truth in his mouth and on his lips has truth within his heart. The mouth is a mirror that shows us what is on the inside, that shows us the condition of the heart of man. Matthew chapter 12. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ taught. So this is what we need to be looking first at our own life, right? Because we are first to judge ourselves, but then also others as well. And if someone is claiming to be a Christian, whether that be us or another, yet their mouth is speaking lies and things that are profane, then do we have reason to question and to doubt the salvation of that person? Of course we do. Of course we do. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure 
what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Right? He says to them, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? Right? Where are, where's the evil found? Where does the evil reside? In their heart. You have an evil heart, and this is why you cannot speak good, true words concerning Christ. And you're going to give an account because from the mouth, it speaks out of what fills the heart. That's why Jesus says, by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. It is not the just words of the righteous that are the basis of their salvation. Of course, he doesn't mean it in that way. He means it in sense of evidence. The evidence that reveals what kind of a person a man is, is seen in the words. And those words will be brought forward on the day of judgment, either to condemn a man or to prove that he is a justified man who has believed in Christ. Also, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And verse 45. This is the parallel account. So we'll read verse 45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. So if you want to know what's in the heart, what fills the heart, then where do you go? What do you look at? What is coming out of his mouth? The mouth speaks from the heart. So the evidence that will be brought forward on the day of judgment to prove what a man is. Is he a child of God? Is he a child of the devil? Is he a sheep? Is he a goat? Is he a righteous man or is he a wicked man? Or as Jesus says, is he a good tree or is he an evil tree? And again, the good person is not made good by his own strength. And he's not made good by his own words. He's made good by the miracle of God. But when the miracle of God occurs upon him, it changes him so that what comes out of his mouth, which is coming out of his heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit, is different than what comes out of the wicked man, and even what came out of him before his salvation. The good words of the good man are the evidence that he has been given a good heart by the Holy Spirit of God. The evil words of the evil man are the evidence that he is still dead in his trespasses and sins, that he still has an evil, unbelieving, wicked, dead, sinful heart. It is the mouth that proves, right? not exclusively because other things will be brought forward as well, but the mouth is a prominent part of this. And that's why Jesus says that your mouth will either justify you or your mouth will condemn you. Also, Romans chapter 3, Romans 3, this is what the apostle, when he's quoting from the prophets to prove the sinfulness of man, Notice that the member he brings forward to show the sinfulness of man has to do with the mouth, right? With the mouth. Again, not that 
there aren't other things that show the sinfulness of man. Of course there are many other things, but this is the clearest, easiest evidence that someone is a sinful man. Romans 3 verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Right? That's the statement. This is what is true of man. Now the evidence. How do we know this is true of man? Notice 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here, when proving the sinfulness of man, he goes to the mouth. Now, he does mention the feet, but he mentions the mouth four times. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep on deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This is the mouth of an evil, wicked, sinful man. Full of death, full of deception, of poison, of curses, and bitterness. Is that what is indicative of a Christian man? Of a righteous man? No, it cannot be. Right? Not that, again, in this life while we're overcoming the flesh, we may not have a failing here or there. But if this is what is true of us all the time, preeminently, exclusively, then it is not indicative of a Christian man. Right? But there are many people who promote this. Right? I'm a Christian, but I just like to cuss a little bit. There are people who say that. Right? They, pr- they pronounce those things boldly, as if it's something to not be ashamed of. Right? I'm a Christian, but I'm just one of those Christians who has a mouth full of death, a mouth full of deception, of poison, of curses, and bitterness. This is an utter contradiction. How can this be true? How can a person practice these kinds of things and claim to be a righteous man? When here, the Bible tells us, the righteous man utters wisdom, and his mouth, his tongue, speaks justice. That is what we should strive for, to use our mouth in a way that is pleasing to God, that nothing impure, nothing obscene would come from our mouth, that we would not speak lies with our mouth, but only what is true according to the word of God. That should be our desire, what we should strive for. But most people, they don't care. They have no concern about what comes out of their mouth. They're not even concerned that what they say might contradict God and may be contradicting His Word. They have no concern of whether or not what they're saying is true or false. They just want to spout out their own opinions. They just want to say, I'm going to get my say and I'm going to say what I think, and they don't care whether or not what they say is consistent with the Word of God or that they might be found in their words opposing God, contradicting the very Word of God. If we are unsure about what we're saying, and whether or not it is true or false, whether or not it contradicts or affirms God's word, then what is the best thing to do? Keep quiet, right? To keep quiet, not open our mouth, and say something that contradicts the word of God, and be condemned by our tongue. 
as it says in Job 13.5. Oh, that you would be completely silent and it would become your wisdom. For a person who's spewing out foolishness, being silent would be wisdom for you just to keep quiet and not say anything at all. But the best thing is not to keep quiet, but when our heart is so filled with the wisdom and justice of God, when our mind is filled with the word of God, and then we can open our mouth and a fountain of life comes pouring forth from us. The very wisdom of God concerning the topic at hand. This should be the desire of every Christian. And this is a characteristic of a righteous man. To use the mouth, not for curses, not for bitterness, not for lies and deception, but for wisdom, for truth, for justice, for righteousness. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, it says in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 7. James chapter 3. Notice James chapter 3. He's talking about how much of a contradiction it is for someone who's a Christian to use their mouth, their tongue, in destructive ways, in ways that are not consistent with the word of God. James chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put bits in horses' mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. There, we shouldn't contradict ourselves with our tongue. We should not bless and curse with our tongue, right? Because it's a fountain and it should be a fountain of life, not a fountain of death. That's what we have to strive against. That's what we have to tame. And no man can tame the tongue. Who's the only one who can tame the tongue? Only God can do it. Only the Spirit of God can do it. And this is what we must strive for by speaking what is true and consistent with the Bible. Also, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. And then also, 
chapter 5, verse 4. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. We shouldn't have unwholesome words coming from our mouth, but only wholesome words, good words, true words. Now, again, he doesn't mean that we're always soft-spoken. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that we never talk about sin, right? Because that's not unwholesome. It's not unwholesome to talk about sin. It's wholesome to speak the word of God, the truth of God concerning sin and what the Bible says about it, right? To say that it's not a big deal, that would be unwholesome. But we shouldn't have this type of filthy, silly talk, coarse jesting, locker room talk, that type of stuff. It's not fitting, right, for the Christian to do that. Also notice in Psalm 37, verse 30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks justice, not merely in his own head, but he utters it outwardly, right? Outwardly, audibly to others, right? In this present world. If a person will not speak, then it shows that he does not believe it. He does not believe it. We can proclaim our belief in God's word all day long, but if we do not speak up, if we do not utter his word, then we do not have true faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is what the apostle teaches. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 says, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. I believe, therefore I spoke. If we believe, then we will speak. We have to believe it in our heart, and then we will speak it with our mouth. And if we don't speak it with our mouth, it's the good word of God. Now, back to Psalm 37. Why does his mouth utter wisdom? Well, we remember what Jesus said in Luke 6:45. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. The mouth is the fruit, right? He's talking first about the fruit, but the heart is the root. And it is from the root that comes forth the fruit. The root is the source of the fruit. So what is the source then of the wisdom and justice that comes from the mouth of the righteous man? Verse 31. Verse 31. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The reason the righteous utters wisdom is because God's law has been written on his heart. And the law of God inscribed upon his heart with the result that the man who previously was a lawless man, previously he was dead in his trespasses and sins, previously he was a very foolish and a wicked man, and now, as a result of the work of God, he is a righteous man who has God's law on his heart. And as a result of the law on the heart, his mouth now speaks wisdom and justice. Amen. And this comes about because of the miracle of regeneration, where the Holy Spirit of God replaces the dead heart with a living heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36 Ezekiel 36, 
This is what the prophet teaches. We'll start reading in verse 22. It says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Your God. Moreover, I will save you from all of your uncleanliness, and I will call for the grain and multiply it, and I will not bring a famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the produce of your field, so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Amen. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you, O house of Israel. There he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Who's the I? God. God does this. A person can't do that to himself. How can a dead man remove his own heart? How can a dead man revive his own spirit? He can't do that. Only God can do it. And he does it by putting my spirit within you. The Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit causes them to 3731. I the law of his God is in his heart. And who put it there? Who wrote it there? The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit writes the law on the heart. Also, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Notice what it says in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins. I will remember no more. Here, he's describing the same thing of Ezekiel. He's just using different words, different metaphors, right? Different images to describe that. Ezekiel said, I'll put my spirit within you. Here he says, I will write my law within them on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God writing the law on the heart. 
and of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, which one is this ministry ascribed to? Of the three, who is the one who accomplishes this? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God transforms the heart of man. Not of all men, but only of God's chosen ones. Only of the elect. He replaces the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Right? Not meaning a sinful and evil heart, but a living heart, a live heart. In our sin, we have a black, dead heart, but the heart of flesh is a living heart, right? one that is alive. And he writes the very law of God upon the heart of man so that the man becomes a new creation, a new creature in the sight of God. In his former life, in his previous life, he was dead in trespasses and sins. He was a wicked man. And as the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. This is why we read earlier from Romans chapter 3. The mouth of the wicked testifies of what is in their heart, that they have sin and wickedness in their heart. It reveals what is there. But that's not what is true of our man in Psalm 37. The man of Psalm 37, the one being described there, he's a righteous man. He's not a wicked man. He's not bringing forth curses and bitterness, but rather he's bringing forth wisdom and justice from his mouth, which indicates what does he have in his heart? He has wisdom and he has justice. But how can this happen? How can a man born dead in his trespasses and sins, how can a man who has a wicked, foolish, unrighteous heart bring forth wisdom and justice? That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? How can an evil man with an evil heart speak what is good? Speak wisdom and justice. It can't happen unless what takes place. There has to be a change. A miracle must occur. The heart must be regenerated. It must be made alive. The heart of stone must be replaced with the heart of flesh. And then and only then will he bring forth wisdom and justice from his mouth. This is what the apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 1, 2 Corinthians 3, 1. And this is the difference when he talks about the fathers, the old covenant, the covenant that I made with the fathers in Jeremiah 31. What he means there is that God gave to the fathers the law of God on tablets of stone, a perfect deposit of the wisdom and justice of God, But what did God not give to them? He didn't give them the changed heart. He did not regenerate their heart. They continued in sin and unbelief. They had an evil, unbelieving heart that led them to fall away from the living God. They did not persist and continue in his ways. We have to have the new heart. This is what needs to happen, and this is what God promises. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 1 says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written on our hearts, manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
That's what Ezekiel's talking about. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. This is what has to take place. It has to be written on the tablet of the heart. The law of God written on the heart. The law of God written on tablets of stone, delivered to the people by Moses, was a perfect deposit of the wisdom and justice of God, but it did not produce wisdom and justice in the people because they had an evil, unbelieving heart. It is only when the law of God is internalized, when it is written on the heart, only then will it produce wisdom and justice in the man. And this, according to the apostle in 2 Corinthians 3, is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that writes or inscribes the law of God on the heart of the elect. And the result is that we become like Christ. What was true of Christ as a man becomes true of us as men and women when the word of God, when the law of God is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Flip over a few pages to Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 7. Well, we'll start reading in verse 6. Psalm 40, verse 6. And we know from Hebrews chapter 10 that David is not talking about himself. But the apostle tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 that David is speaking about Christ. David was a prophet and he spoke of the person and work of Christ. And that's who he's talking about in Psalm 40 verses 6 through 8. He's speaking about Jesus Christ. Psalm 40 verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus delighted in doing the will of God because the law of God, from conception for his whole life, and even today, the law of God is written on the heart of Christ. Well, what is true of Christ will be true of his people as well. True of us. Not by nature, but by conversion, by regeneration, by the miracle of God. God's law written on the heart so that we too will delight to know the will of God just as Jesus delighted to know the will of God. Now, a few points concerning this, concerning the law of God on the heart. First, notice... Psalm 37. Is it in the Old Testament or New Testament? This isn't in the New Testament, right? We all understand. It's in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament is where the book of Psalms is found. Psalm 37 was written by David in his later years of his life, around 1000 BC. So 1000 years before Jesus Christ, 1000 years before the day of Pentecost, that in the Old Testament era, because he's not talking about the future. He's talking about his own generation or his children begging for bread. He's not saying that this is what will be true of the righteous after the day of Pentecost. He means it in his own generation. This is what he's seeing. In the Old Testament then, among the righteous, the law of God was written on the heart. And it resulted in his mouth bringing forth wisdom and justice. And the mouth being a snapshot of his whole life. The life of the righteous is a life of wisdom and justice. 
That's his mouth, his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears, right? This is what is true and indicative of his life. He walks in the way of righteousness. And why does he do so? Because the law has been inscribed on the heart by... So in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints or the Old Testament Christians, they were regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. They were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God wrote the law of God on the heart of the redeemed with the result that they lived a godly life. They kept the commandments of God. And here in Psalm 37, we're not talking about prophets, though it is true of prophets. We're not talking about kings. We're not talking about judges, right? Those who obtained a special calling from God or had some unique position or some unique role. But the prophet David is describing what is true of all of the righteous, right? That's who he's talking about, the righteous in general. The average Christian of the Old Testament was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He was filled by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit wrote the law of God Testament in the Old Testament. Now this is very important because if this happened in a different way by their own strength, then isn't that another way of salvation? Isn't this another way of redemption? Right? Aren't they doing something that we don't have the ability to do today? It can't be the case. It has to be the same. Example, Joshua 24. Joshua 24 2 with Genesis 26, 4 and 5. Joshua 24, 2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Here in recounting the history, the beginnings of Israel, Their fathers lived beyond the river, lived beyond the Euphrates River. And when they lived there, what did they do? They served other gods. Terah, Abraham, Nahor. That's the day that we're talking about. They served other gods, which is sin, which is lawlessness, which is disobedience to God, right? To serve other gods. This is to sin against God. But then notice Genesis Chapter 26, verse 4. What God says about Abraham when he's commending the life of Abraham to Isaac. Genesis 26, verse 4. says, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So what happened? How is it that he goes from being an idol worshiper to being a worshiper of the true God? How is it he goes from being a lawless man, a disobedient man, a sinful man, to being a man described by God, right? By God, as one who obeyed me, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. How did this happen in the life of Abraham? How was Abraham able to obey God, keep God's charge, his commandments, his statutes, and laws? Did he do this through his own strength? Was he able by his own power and might to change his own nature 
from being an idol-worshiping, sinful man to being an obedient worshiper of God. Impossible. Impossible for this to be the case. So how did it happen? The same way it happens with you and me. By the miracle of regeneration. By the work of the Spirit of Christ. Only in that way can this happen to Abraham. Can he go from being an idol worshiper to being an obedient man? And this is the work of the Spirit of God. It is his ministry to regenerate the sinner, to fill the saint, and to write the law of God on his heart. And only when the law of God is internalized can a man, as Abraham, walk in the pathway of God's commandments, whether that's in the Old Testament or whether that's in the New Testament, whether that's before the day of Pentecost or whether that is after the day of Pentecost. Human nature is the same. We know that from Romans 5, 12 to 21. Human nature from Adam is the same until the end of the world. So unless Abraham had a different nature than we do, how was he able to do this? He didn't have a different nature, so it's impossible for him to do this. His salvation must be one and the same with ours. The way of righteousness must be the same. The powerful working of the Holy Spirit of God. This is the peculiar ministry of the Spirit. He is the one who causes us to be born again. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into that kingdom. You must be born again. And isn't Jesus in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus about this, isn't he astonished and amazed that you, Nicodemus, are a teacher in Israel and you don't understand new birth? You don't understand the necessity of being born again, of being regenerated. Before any of the New Testament had been written, Jesus expected Nicodemus to know and understand and as a teacher to be teaching the necessity of new birth, of the changed heart from the Old Testament. Nicodemus, have you not read Jeremiah 31? Have you not read Ezekiel 36? Have you not read Psalm 37, verses 30 through 31? How can these things be true of us in our natural and in our sinful state? This is the work of the Spirit, to write the law of God on the heart with the result that the man walks in the pathway of God's commandment. Only by the Spirit can this be realized. And if the Spirit of God didn't exist or wasn't present and wasn't active and wasn't working in the Old Testament among men, as many people believe and teach, then how can Psalm 37, 31 be true? It doesn't make any sense. How did the law of God get in that man's heart if the Holy Spirit is not working in the Old Testament? How can a man born in trespasses and sins in the Old Testament have the law of God on the heart without the ministry of the Spirit? And again, I say this because it is widely, commonly believed in many churches that the Holy Spirit did not regenerate, did not indwell people in the Old Testament, that he wasn't active, he wasn't working, and that the ministry of the Spirit did not begin as it is today until the day of Pentecost. And I'm not making this up. Likely many of you have heard this. And I even recently heard a local pastor of a Baptist church, not a stone's throw away from where we're meeting today, say that in the, Holy, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit can only be at one place at one time. He could not work in multiple people at one time. Only in one person, at one place, in one time. 
So the spirit could work in a prophet here or a king there or in this or that judge, but only one place, one time, here or there. And he did not indwell the average saint of the Old Testament, just, but just worked among those who had a special role or a special office. This is not only nonsense, this, this is blasphemy. It is blasphemy to say these things because then we have to credit man with what only the Holy Spirit can do, with what only God can do. The law of God is in his heart, is what the, psalm, the psalmist tells us here. If the Spirit does not work in the Old Testament, then how can that statement be true? And by whose power is it accomplished? How can it be true? It can only be true by the Spirit. It can only be true by the Spirit. Second point concerning these things. Notice as well, it is the law of God. The law of God written on the heart. And what law of God is he talking about, per se? There is no way on earth that the prophet is referring to a law that does not include the ten holy commandments of God. The Holy Spirit writes the law of God on the heart of all believers, whether Old Testament or New Testament, and the law of God includes the Ten Commandments of God. The Ten Commandments. Not five of the ten, not eight of the ten, not nine of the ten, but ten of the ten, ten commandments written on the heart with the result that we will have a desire to obey all ten of the commandments of God. Psalm 119.97, we read it earlier. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You cannot be a Christian without being born of the Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without being filled with the Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without having the law of God written on the heart. He does this for all of God's children. All God's children have all of God's law written on the heart. So then, how can someone be a Christian and hate the law of God? How can someone be a Christian and live a disobedient life to God's commandment? How can someone be a Christian and call obedience to the Ten Commandments legalism? criticize people for preaching from the Ten Commandments and say that it is legalism. Say that even if we mention the word obedience, even if we mention the word law, the word commandment, that this is somehow legalism. But this is very common today as well. There are many people who believe that. If a man is a Christian, he must have the Spirit of God. And if he has the Spirit of God, the Spirit will certainly inscribe the law of God on the heart, with the result that he will both love the law of God and he will want to obey the law of God. He will have a desire to know and to obey the law of God. As it says, multiple verses for us here, multiple verses. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keep them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 
and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. No one told the apostle John that the word commandments was legalism. That obedience was legalism. See, he wasn't instructed rightly. Someone needed to tell him that. No, he knows what's right. He knows what is good and right. 1 John 5, 3. For this is love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why are the commandments of God not burdensome for the true Christian? Because he has the Spirit within him, and the Spirit is riding it on his heart. So the commandments are a delight for him. He loves them. This is why Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because he gives his Spirit to us, and the Spirit bears up with us and gives us the desire and the delight to obey God's commandment. And any time we sense in us, a resistance to that, a resistance to the obedience of God, to the commandments of God. We know it's not coming from the Spirit, but where is it coming from? The flesh. It's coming from the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we have to resist it. We have to reject it. Then lastly, 2 John, verse 6. This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Love for God, love for Christ, is seen in love for His commandments and walking in His commandments because the law is written on the heart. This is what the prophet teaches us in Psalm 37. His mouth utters wisdom, his tongue has justice because the law of God, by the Spirit of God, has been written on his heart. And this is what will be true of all Christians whether Old Testament or New Testament, this is what must be true of us. So do we see this? Is this manifesting itself and bearing itself out in our life? What does our mouth say about us? What does our tongue speak concerning us? Does it show the law of God is within our hearts? And what about the way that we live? Do we have a desire, a delight to know the commandments of God? To walk in the pathway of God's commandments? This is what proves whether or not we are children of God. This is what proves whether or not the love of God is in our heart, that we will want to keep his commandments. And we will teach others as well. We'll speak those things because we believe them and we know how good and wonderful they are. So let us then strive to live in this way, to use our mouth, not for curses and bitterness, but to use our mouth to bring forth the very wisdom and justice of God and for that wisdom and justice to overflow in our heart and to overflow to many others as well. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come to you, Lord, today, Lord, greatly desiring, Lord, to know your wisdom and your justice. Lord, knowing that your wisdom is greater than all the wisdom of this world and that your justice, Lord, is true. It is righteous. It is the only justice Lord, that we should desire. Lord, we know that this can be found for us in your word. Let your word teaches us. Lord, because your word comes from you. It is your mind revealed to us. It gives to us your wisdom. Lord, it instructs us in the way of justice. And so, Father, we pray that this is what we would desire, to know your will. Lord, to de desire it more than our food. Lord, that... 
our delight would be in doing the will of God. Lord, as well, we pray that your law would be written on our heart. And that, Lord, your law, written on the heart by the Spirit, Lord, would dominate our life. Lord, more and more that we would walk in the pathway of your commandments. Lord, we know that whenever there is resistance, Lord, to obedience to you, Lord, that it's not coming from the Spirit within us. How could the Spirit resist your law, being that it came from him, and he's the one writing it on our heart? Lord, we know if there is any resistance to these things, it is from our own sinful flesh. And so, Father, we pray that you would crucify our flesh. Lord, that it would have less power over us. Lord, that it would not exert over us the same energy or vigor that it has in the past, but rather that it would be weakened, Lord, by your Holy Spirit that is within us. Lord, we pray that we would judge ourselves with righteous judgment. Lord, knowing that we are called to examine our life and to test ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. And Lord, here we see that our mouth, Lord, should testify that we are your children, that by our mouth we will be justified or by our mouth we will be condemned. So Lord, may we judge ourselves truly with righteous judgment so that we do not come under your judgment one day. And Lord, we pray that our mouth would be used, Lord, in a way that brings glory and honor to you. Lord, with wholesome words, with what is true and, Lord, what is gracious and good. Lord, that we would never use our mouth to curse, Lord, for bitterness, for evil. Lord, to swear or to say things that are lewd and profane. But rather only what is wholesome and pure and righteous. Lord, in pleasing in your sight. Lord, in good for others. Lord, to build them up and to edify them in the faith. Lord, as well, we pray that our life would be characterized by obedience to your commandments. Lord, we know that this is the life of Christ. He obeyed your law. He obeyed it perfectly. He kept every one of your Ten Commandments without one trespass in all of his life. And Lord, we know that this is what will be true of us one day in the life to come. But Lord, we pray that it would be true of us today as well. Lord, that it would be increasing within us. And that, Lord, daily we would walk more and more in the pathway of your commandments. And Lord, just as it was said of Abraham, that he obeyed you, that he kept your charges and your statutes, Lord, your laws and your commandments. Lord, we pray as well that it would be true of us. That, Lord, this is what our life would testify. That we are your children and that we do love you because we keep your commandments. So, Lord, we know that this work, Lord, is only something that you can do. And we pray that you would do it among us. Lord, as well, we pray for our children, Lord, that you have granted to us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would regenerate them, that your spirit would write your law upon their heart, and that, Lord, you would cause them to bring forth, Lord, wisdom and justice from their mouth and wisdom and justice in the way that they live and that they might be co-heirs with us, Lord, of eternal life. So, Lord, we ask that you grant to us your favor and your blessing. And, Lord, give to us your strength and the mercy that we need so that we might walk in the pathway of your commandments. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.